Welcome back to another episode of Walking Together. I'm Crystal. And I'm Ashley. And this evening, uh, we have with us again, former Grand Chief of Anishinaabeaski Nation and Ontario Regional Chief, and a survivor of Shingwalk Residential School, Charles Fox. Hi, Charles. Welcome back tonight. Good evening. I'm glad to be back. Awesome. So tonight, Charles is going to be sharing with us some of his experiences while he attended Shingwalk Residential School located in Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario. Charles, did you want to maybe tell us a little bit about, you know, how old you are, you were when you were, you went to residential school and kind of what that, what that experience was like for you? Sure. I, I can, I can relate to that. First of all, you know, uh, uh, my, my uh, spirit name is Pogune uh, Gijik which means a uh, hole in a day in the English language. My other spirit name is Kalkunagabovich, uh, he who stands tall. My first name, Bagunayizhi, was given to me by uh, the elders of Grand Council Treaty Number 3. They also uh, adopted me into the Lynx clan. Now, my family has always informed me that our brother is the wolf. Therefore, our dudem is the wolf, the wolf clan. And the second name, my guima is translated into the English version is uh, your godfather. And I had the honor of having uh, Jonas Fiddler from Sandy Lake as my godfather, my guimas, and he gave me that name. When, uh, when I first went home, back to the Bearskin, I spoke broken English and I spoke broken Anshinimon, uh, you call it, our, our dialect. So my mom and dad took me in the bush, uh, probably five, six years in a row, every fall, every spring. And uh, they deprogrammed me and reprogrammed me. And I got the grasp of the language again. So my dad said to me, son, don't lose your language again. And he said, when you have the opportunity to use your God-given language, use it. So I'm going to do that now. Mitsuan <laughs> 
So loosely translated, I, uh, I was just acknowledging that uh, the language given to me, my God-given dialect is uh, one that uh, I am honored to have. I almost lost it in residential school. And the, the spirit names that were given to me, that's, that's my identity. That's uh, who I am. My colonized name is Charles Fox. That was uh, a name uh, given to me by the uh, non-native system, non-native uh, birthing process, registration. That's my uh, anglicized name. But my true identity, my true self, is Pagunayijik Kakunigabauch. That's who I am. And uh, that is my soul. That's my heart. And that's one that I don't want to lose personally. And that's one that I would advocate for uh, First Nations young people, First Nations persons themselves as well, to embrace. So when I when I think when I think about residential school and uh, the residential school experience, it's a chapter in my life that was very traumatizing, but also it taught me to survive, and it's instilled in me a purpose. And I never really got to grasp that purpose until the later years of my life. One must understand the residential school saw 150,000 children go through the doors of that institute. 150,000. When you look at the, uh, the lifespan of the residential school system in Ontario, you look at the Mohawk Institute, it started in 1828 before Confederation. And the last one in Ontario, I believe, closed around 1996. That's almost 170 years. Can you imagine how many generations of children were affected by that school, by that school system? And the trauma one suffered in that institution is great. It's uh, monumental, it's incalculable. The damages that, uh, that were created by that policy of trying to convert the natural Anishinaabe, Anishinaabe, Haudenosaunee child to be a non-native child. It's, it's, it's incalculable. It's just one cannot even begin to think about the effects of that. 150,000 kids went through there. And when you look at current day statistics that... Uh, the Truth and Reconciliation shared with us, 6,000 made it to be missing. 6,000. 
that's just a conservative number. You know, Kawas has just found seven, over 750. Or, yeah, 750, I think. And Campbell found 215. That's almost 1,000 in two sites. <laughs> and there's 139 such sites across the country. And those are former residential school sites. I'm not talking about industrial schools where more children were sent. I'm not talking about the hospitals where hundreds, maybe thousands of children died. I'm not talking about uh, municipal or urban graveyards where a lot of those children are buried and not recorded. Because, again, conservatively, according to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, over 4,000, between 4,000 and 5,000 children died in the residential school system. Again, that's a conservative number. It's not recorded. It's not recorded. You know, a good example is just recently uh, I, I was uh, honored and I was asked to come to a child that had been found at the, in Thunder Bay here, the St. Andrews Cemetery. A little girl who went missing in 1910. And uh, St. Joseph's, where she went, said she had been discharged. She had been discharged. And the family said, to where she never made it home. 111 years later, they find her buried at St. Andrew's Cemetery. They had to go through all the cemeteries. And they said they were lucky they did that. And they discovered her. And that's, just, that's one example. How many of that do we have across the country? Discharged. Never made it home. Nobody followed up on it. That's an abomination. But that's the residential school system. That's the residential school institution. That's what it represented. That's what it stands for. The residential school policy was meant to exterminate the Indian. And I don't like using the word Indian. I don't like using the word native or Aboriginal. Where I come from, Anishinaanwag, Anishinaanwag. Southern, southern parts of our territory in Nan, those are Anishinaabe. To the east are the Meshkigawak. That's, that's who we are. We're not native, we're not Indian, we're not Aboriginal. That's our identity. That's our origin. But going back to that word, that was the whole ultimate purpose of the residential school. One policy, just one policy, Canadian policy. To get rid of the Indian problem, to get rid of the Indian, cultural genocide, genocide, extermination. Let's do this, you know, assimilation. And in the process, if we kill a few thousand of them and a few thousand disappear, so be it. But we're going to turn that little savage into a civilized, non-native person. We're going to beat the savageness out of him. We're going to convert 
a little uncivilized being into a civilized being who has all the non-native norms. That was the whole intent of the residential school system. And when you look at it today, it's heinous. It's, it's an abomination. It's evil. Would you do that in today's society? I think not. But this such policy was crafted, developed, and implemented. And as I said in my earlier remarks, my first remarks when I, when I made this presentation to you, it's all historically rooted, all historically rooted. Like I told you originally, you only have to look at the doctrine, terra nullis doctrine. The terra nullis doctrine empowers the explorers to discover lands and territories and the names of their kings and queens. The terra nullis doctrine empowers the, empowers the explorers to discover it no matter if people are occupying those lands and territories. Because the terra nullis, terra nullis doc, doctrine says those people are uncivilized. They're savages. So we can find them, discover them, and claim them along with the territory. That was the premise of the explorers landing on our shores. And that's what they did. And we welcomed them with open arms. We, we helped them survive harsh winters. We helped them survive their diseases like scurvy. We nursed them through those sicknesses. We helped them. So that was first contact. And how that relationship changed over the years is for me is uh, is truly fascinating but you know you have to you have to look at the history beyond the explorers landing here you look at you have to look at uh, what the british crown did even before that how they tried to civilize and colonize other countries they were well experienced they had landed in other parts of the world they had taken on the Scottish, the Irish, and their own territory to convert them, to make them English. In the name of God, in the name of Christianity, uh, you, you, you only have to look at the Crusades as well. You know, it goes way back. But that's the history that uh, one must examine leading up to contact with us as the indigenous people of Turtle Island and how the settlers of that day wanted to wrest control and power and take those lands and resources away from the inhabitants of, of that country and uh, suppress and oppress those inhabitants based on racist policies, based on racism, prejudice, discrimination, superiority, inferiority. And that's been the whole underlying norm of today, of society, even up to today. It hasn't gone away because it was not only systemic, but institutionalized in every form, permeates throughout society. And people accept it as a norm. 
And when you look at the relationship, how that has evolved, it's uh, truly, um, truly interesting. When there were wars between the British and the French, between the Americans and the British, we were allies. The War Measures Act of Canada, I believe, is 1756 or something like that, says that we were allies in these battles. You know, we helped them when they landed. We became their allies in war. And then in 1867, the division of powers between the federal and the crown with the provincial governments, all of a sudden we're uh, wards of the state. Section 9124. Section 9124 identifies that we become the re responsibility of the federal government under the Indian Act. The Indian Act still exists to this day. And it's very colonial, it's very racist, it's very uh, uh, damaging in terms of how we are viewed as a community, as a society of people. You know, only one has to take a good look at that legislation. It still governs us today. You need to examine that in detail and just see the uh, racist intent of that policy, that legislation. So you look at that relationship, you know, hey, we helped them. They're partners with us, we're allies in war, all of a sudden we've become words. But underlying all that is that stream of, of racism, of one that uh, we're, in, we're inferior, we're savages, we're not civilized. And uh, one where the dominant society is, is superior. And therefore, through development of legislation policy, they can uh, take away the lands and resources of the original inhabitants and make it legal. You know, in our land claims, land claims, we say we, we were here first, and it's a fact we were here first. These are our lands and resources. Yet we have to go to court to prove that these are our lands and resources. And you know what? They threw that doctrine at you, terra nullis. Terra nullis, you were discovered. And we discovered these lands. So these are our lands, not your story. So based on that doctrine, based on their legal interpretation and legal system, they always win. That's a sad fact of life. So the residential school policy, that's where it comes from. That's the foundation. That's the basis of it. And the intent of that policy, like I said, was to get rid of the Indian. Let's solve the Indian problem. And it's crafted by prominent people of the day at that time, including the first prime minister of this country. And the various uh, lords and whatever their titles were, the parliamentarians, was all based on racist attitudes and racist outlook that indigenous people are meant to be dominated and we have to get rid of them. So when I look at that particular history, and you know, I would ask our young people, and I would ask society in general to review that and see it for what it truly is. Because in order for you to have real reconciliation between uh, non-native society and the indigenous society, you got you got to remove those walls of uh, ignorance. And you have to look at the real picture. And that's the real picture. And you have to embrace it and you have to accept it. 
and you have to begin to correct those wrongs. It's, it's the same thing as decolonization. Denial is the first phase of decolonizing. Well, society has to move past that denial. They have to move past that denial that they didn't do anything wrong. And the majority of the Canadians are in denial. The majority. The second step to decolonization is to acknowledge what happened to you. So non-native society has to acknowledge what they did in the past, what their ancestors did. And then you can truly move forward. Because after your acknowledgement, then you have to cry. You have to grieve for all the trespasses, all the wrongdoings. That applies to us too, as de, you know, the, decolon, the, the colonized people. How do we decolonize? We have to grieve for all that we lost. And so does non-native society. And once you grieve, then you go through healing. Healing measures. There's two societies. How do we heal? How do we reconcile? What measures do we have to institute to correct all those wrongs, to correct the injustices of the past? And then you go into empowerment. That's what I see with as a, as a personal, as an indigenous person in terms of the phases of colonization and decolonization that both societies would have to look at and take on if they're going to truly go through reconciliation. So when you look at the, the, the residential school policy and what it did, abuse, abuse of every stripe and color, physical abuse, you were beaten, your hair was cut, you were hosed down, if you didn't comply with regulations, you were beaten, strapped, in some circumstances, thrown into an isolation room to try and break you. Couldn't speak your language. If you spoke your language, uh, you were punished. Physical abuse. And if uh, you weren't physically abused by the counselors and the administrators of the institution, and uh, Roman Catholic churches, it was the brothers and the sisters who, who beat uh, kids. Then it was uh, the senior students, if you were, uh, if you were uh, a junior student. I was eight years old when I first went to Shinwa. And if uh, the big boys uh, wanted something, oh, you had to kowtow to them, man. Otherwise, they beat the crap out of you. Emotional abuse, mental abuse, cultural abuse. They bore down on you. And they told you that you were a little savage. That you were no good. That you could not speak your language. You could not practice your traditions. You could not speak to your parents. You weren't allowed phone calls. You weren't allowed to write letters. You're completely cut off. And you had to speak the English language. You had to eat properly. You had to go to school. You had to do instructions that were given to you. You had to follow schedules. Abuse, emotional, mental. Because they told you you were no good right from day one. Told you you're no good, you're no good, you're no good. In order to be good, you, you got to become an English-speaking little boy who acts like a non-native child. Spiritual abuse drove 
Christian teachings into your head, Christian morals. You have to get up six o'clock every morning and go to church first thing in the morning, five days a week. Sundays, you have to go to church three, four times a day because they told you that English, Christendom, and the practices of Christianity was the way to be saved. That was your path to being a good person and a path to your enlightenment and to be saved. And that your ways are not good. Your ways are evil. Sexual abuse. You run into that with the counselors. You run into that with the older boys. You get confronted with that. It was a fact of life in those institutions. So abuse in all forms. Psychological warfare on the child. Psychological to break him down or her down. To break the spirit of that child. He or she had to be dominated, had to be instructed, had to be taught that he or she was no longer an Indian child, but he or she was going to become a non-native thinking child, speaking child, practicing child. The attempt to break that boy or girl, break the spirit. That's what I endured. And it uh, damaged me as a, as a person to great lengths. When I came out of that institution, I, I had no uh, understanding of family. I didn't know what family was. Didn't know how to relate to a mother or a father. Didn't know how to relate to brothers and sisters. What I was taught in that institution was to survive in any way, any shape or form that I could survive, to survive. And that's the way I grew up. And then I had children. What do I teach them about family values? What do I teach them about love, compassion, empathy, you know, kindness? That's, that's difficult. You have to learn through trial and error to be a parent. Some of us succeed, some of us don't. And that's where the residential school syndrome comes in. Because then what happened to you in the residential school, that institution, you pass on to your children. And they become residential school survivors because of who you are and what you experienced at that institution and the fact that you're passing on what you learned at that institution to them. And they, in turn, pass it on to their children. That's the residential school system. As, as, as a survivor, I know that happened to me. I passed that on to my children. And now their children, they're passing it on to them. 150,000 children, multiply that. And people, you know, bugs the shit out of me when they say to me, what's wrong with you guys? What's your problem? <laughs> you know? <laughs> well, this is just one policy of, uh, of um, racism, of uh, extermination, of uh, genocide, cultural genocide. Well, only one policy. Look at the, look at its effect on us. There are countless policies in the Canadian system that are prejudicial and discriminatory and racist. 
that we, we still have to contend with and deal with as, as a people. So when I look at, uh, when I look at the impacts of uh, residential school system, I mean, the, the fact that uh, families are affected is just one example. There's health factors, social factors, economic factors, so many factors as a result of this one particular policy and its negative impact, impact effect on all those different sectors. Like I said at the beginning, it's incalculable what this one policy and the damaging effect it had on uh, us as a society of people. And that's what we're, uh, that's what we're uh, wrestling with today. That's what we're dealing with today. That's what we're, that's what we're trying to come to grips with and uh, hopefully find solutions to uh, improve the health and, and well-being of our people, our communities, our nations. Reconciliation, I touched upon that. One of the probably quantifiable goals that a society we should set is uh, education. Let's introduce it into our curriculum. Let's give our children the real history, the true history of uh, what transpired and what happened to the indigenous society and population and why that particular policy has such a negative effect on their children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, how it impacted generations and generations of people. Let's look at setting up uh, a national center on residential schools. Wouldn't that be something? National Center on Residential Schools. Monument, a building that would capture the residential school experience. List the names of those 150,000 children. List the names of the children that were missing. List the names of the children that died. Wouldn't that be something? That would be a fantastic step forward in terms of acknowledging what happened to us as a people. And it would be there forever. Reconciliation. Society has to remove their blinders. Government has to be accountable. Churches have to be accountable. We need an international oversight body like the United Nations to be involved in this whole exercise of residential schools. We need international pressure, international presence, I know they can't force or make changes in domestic settings, but at least we could provide that presence in the international venue, the international body of what Canada's obligations are and responsibilities are to the residential school system. For example, if we're gonna do thorough investigations, radar detection in all 139 plus sites, we're going to need lots of money, probably in excess of a billion dollars. Over the last election, I didn't hear any debate on that. Nobody brought that question forward. Nobody raised the issue about Canada's accountability to the residential school system. And that's just one small, one small issue is uh, unmarked graves. Small issue in the bigger scheme of the political machinery that we deal with in this country. But for us, it's a big issue because these are our children. 
We want to find them. We want to bring them home. So what if it costs them over a billion dollars to do it? That's Canada's obligation. That's their responsibility to provide those resources to do it. But how are we going to make them accountable? And that's why I was suggesting probably an international oversight body like the United Nations to set up an oversight mechanism for that. And the churches, the Pope won't even apologize. Why can't the Pope apologize for their part? I don't understand that. Where is the Christian teaching in that? What, where, 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 you know, to turn his back on the missing children. Where is the Christian principle in that regard? I don't understand that. And why, why were the executive of the national organization, why were they trying to travel to Italy, to the Vatican, to implore the Pope to uh, apologize? That's a lost cause. I'd rather see him come here to the country and apologize to the people. Then it's sincere, it's real. But the Pope hasn't done that. So how do you make the churches accountable? You don't make them accountable by burning their buildings, which happened here for a little bit. That's not the way. You got to get all the people involved and supportive of the positions that you put forward. I was, uh, I was uh, shared with uh, Sacred Covenant, the Kamloops uh, First Nation seeking with the Catholic Church. And that Sacred Covenant was based on the Papal Edict of 1536, where uh, the Pope at that time issued a bulletin saying, the peoples of those countries are human beings and as such treat them as human beings. Don't harass them, don't kill them, don't take their lands, don't steal anything. But of course the governments of the day didn't listen. But there was a papal edict. And then subsequently there was another one for the Mi'kmaq in the 1600s. So Kamloops First Nation is building on that saying, hey, the Pope of the day at that time issued this edict we have a relationship, we have a partnership. So Roman Catholic Church, let's work together. You have 50 dioceses across the country. Pull your 50 dioceses together. Let's work together to deal with the missing children, the unmarked graves in this country. On those sites that you as the Roman Catholic Church is responsible for. It's a good approach. So I don't know where they're at with it, but it's one of the alternatives in terms of finding solutions and uh, finding our children. And those kinds of partnerships have to be de developed with all the churches that play a role in the residential school process, residential school institutions, all the churches. It's an example. So it can be done. And that's part of the reconciliation is uh, those issues that I just identified, where you have accountability by the government of the day, you have accountability by the churches, and you have accountability by other sectors in society in general, provincial governments, territorial governments, municipal governments, educational institutions, corporations. You gotta reach out, you gotta find partners, and you gotta tackle this issue and how to begin to correct it. And that's, uh, that's challenging, it's, it's complicated, it's very complex, but 
somebody has to have a vision of how they're going to tackle all that and begin to develop that plan, develop strategies, media, legal, political, social, economic, all the strategies. Somebody has to do it. But it's doable. And uh, I'm sure you'd find willing, willing partners in every sector to work with you to begin to address the issues that have to be addressed in relation to the residential school policy. So th those are just some of my thoughts. I know that uh, they're not detailed and they're uh, very general. I hope it helps with uh, your podcast. But uh, I think for me, that's uh, my experience and just my outlook and my thoughts and approaches in terms of how one begins to deal with the residential school policy, the residential school syndrome, all the effects and the impacts and what corrective steps we can take. Charles, one of the things I've always been most impacted by is the story um, of, of how you were taken to residential school. Is that mm. something that you'd be willing to share or, and, and how long were you in residential school for? Like when, how old were you when you were able to return home finally? I know you well, were taken up when you were eight, right? I was eight years old and uh, I stayed in the residential school system until uh, I graduated to high school. And I never formally made it home until I was 20, uh, 12 years later. But uh, there were uh, periods where I went home in the summer times, uh, the odd Christmas. So basically I was removed from my, from my home. And I didn't get to experience uh, the strong family attachments, family values, family teachings that should come naturally for an 8 to 20-year-old boy and young man. So I lost that. And uh, I just, you know, I outlined the, uh, the telling impact it had on me and the fact that uh, my parenting was a trial and error and I had to learn my poor children suffered that. My poor wife suffered that. And when you think about it, there's 150,000 kids that went through that. Imagine the devastating effect it's uh, had on us as a people. It's, uh, it's really uh, like, uh, it's hard to describe and it's hard to fathom the... Uh, feelings, emotions that you go through when you think about that. And I, 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 that, those come to the, to the surface all the time when I think about it, especially when they found the, uh, the missing children in Kamloops. Uh, that, that hit me really, really hard. I had a real, real difficult time with that. And I still do. And I'll probably continue to experience that with every finding. And it's just starting. You know, we still have uh, probably 130 sites plus to explore. There's 18 in Ontario. We haven't even begun in Ontario. And so imagine, imagine the effect this has on uh, the survivors. They're there. They're there. there. The trauma, the wounds, you reopen them. You, you expose that, that hurt. 
Uh, yeah, I was eight years old. And uh, when you look at uh, the fact that you were kidnapped, you get thrown on a plane and you're shipped down south to go to a residential school. And your parents are not even, not even uh, notified. You're, uh, you abscond with you and just, boom, you're gone. It's a terrifying experience for a child. Hard to recover from that. And I, uh, I think about that and I say to myself, you know, in today's society that uh, would be grounds for criminal charge, charges, you know? Yes. And in those days, it was just a norm. And that's how a lot of children were taken. Parents weren't even notified or they were threatened. But if they stood in the way of the people that were coming for the children, that they would be charged or they would lose their, uh, at that time, uh, their uh, governmental payouts, payments, you know. Sad, but that's reality. I just want to thank you again for sharing your experiences with us. I know this is very personal and very emotional for you. And so it's such an honor for you to, for you to share your experiences with us and to like, hold this space with us. Like, I know I'm really honored to sit here and listen to your story. So let me go ahead. Thank you so much, Charles, for taking the time to talk with us today. I think, uh, especially with the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation coming up, it's especially important for us to be having these conversations and to make people aware of, like you mentioned, of what's gone on. Um, But thank you so much for sharing your experience with us. Uh, As Crystal said, I know that it's deeply personal. um, And so I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us about it. Well, thank you for the opportunity to share. I I enjoyed it and I, uh, it's an educational process, one that uh, has to be uh, taken on by uh, all of society. And there's gotta be a willingness for that to happen. A lot of times uh, the will isn't there. Like I said, the denial is very strong and uh, people don't want to move past that denial to acknowledge the majority of our society is in that stance. So, but thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. Take care, Charles. Yeah, you too. Take care. <laughs>